First Thessalonians chapter 3. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Let me begin by wishing all the mothers a very happy Mother's Day. I think the vocation of motherhood is often underappreciated, and yet when I feel my life getting a little shifty, I know I can count on my mom. I am an unapologetic mama's boy. I call my mom almost every day of the week, make no do not apologize for that at all because I, because I know when I, when I really need someone to listen or just really be there for me, there are three people I know I can count on 100%. My wife, my dog Arlo, and my mom. So thank you, moms. I think we can all agree that we like to be encouraged at least from time to time. We all receive enough criticism that it's good to hear someone say something nice about us. Last week, I received a note from an unexpected person. It was very encouraging, and and quite frankly, it changed the entire trajectory of, of my day. This morning, we turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians is more a letter than it is a book. It was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Thessalonica. And the, the heart of this letter is to encourage this small, fledgling church in this very pagan city. I want to turn our attention back to our text, which Robin read a moment ago. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I want to look at verses 1 and 2 as we begin. The Apostle Paul writing, and he says, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Now to give you just a little bit of background and context, 
the Apostle Paul, along with two others, uh, Timothy and Silas, uh, journeyed on their missionary travels to this city, the city of Thessalonica, and they began a small fledgling church in a home. Now, Paul and his group had to leave because they had disrupted uh, the synagogue, uh, frustrated some of the leaders, and so they were threatened with their life, and so they snuck away at night. You can read that story in Acts chapter 14. And they left and went to Berea, then to Athens, which is where I believe that Paul wrote this letter from, or at least this letter originated from. Now, at this particular point, he's writing about sending Timothy back to the Thessalonians to strengthen them and encourage them in their faith. There was a fear that these Christians were growing weary, that they were in danger of giving up because of the hostile environment that they lived in. And so Timothy went to encourage and strengthen their faith. My hope today, my simple motive and goal and desire is to strengthen you and encourage you in your faith. Now, the, the, the operative word there is the word faith. But the, because the word faith is a bit misunderstood. We often use the word faith to describe something that we believe in. I believe in God, therefore I have faith in God. However, the word faith in the New Testament is more a reference to trust than it is belief. Because I can believe in something and not trust it. And I can trust in things that maybe I, I shouldn't. I mean, we, we put our trust in all kinds of valuable things, don't we? Put our trust in all kinds of things without even thinking about it. This morning when you drove to church, you got in your car and you put on your seatbelt because you had Faith, you had trust that should you get into an accident, your likelihood of survival goes up exponentially because of your seatbelt. When you arrived at church this morning and chose your seat, you didn't think about whether or not the seat would hold your weight. You sat in it in faith, knowing that it would. I've got a friend of mine who uh, is a golf pro. And he told me that if he lets him, if he helps me, he'll take 10 strokes off my game. And I'm putting a lot of faith because I got to beat my son because I can't take it anymore. So I'm going to put my faith there. We put our faith in all kinds of valuable things. So I want to strengthen you and encourage you today, not just in your belief, but who it is that you, you trust. See, Jesus gives substance to what was suppositional. In the Old Testament, particularly in the intertestamental period, which is the time between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, there was very little interaction with God. God seemed silent, and so the the people, the followers, the Jews, the the worshipers of Yahweh, they, they had the words of the prophets, they had the stories, and they had tradition. But there was no, no interaction with, with, with God at all. And so when Jesus comes in the New Testament, as recorded in the Gospels, Jesus comes and brings substance 
to what it is and who it is that they were, were trusting in. And that, that, that same substance meets with us here today and what we're gathered together because we in some way believe or have faith in Christ. I mean, lots of people have a very positive view of who Jesus is. At a recent survey by the Barna Group, seven out of 10 Americans said they have a very positive view who Jesus is. However, Jesus is not looking for us to have a positive view of him. See, what Jesus desires is that we trust him. You ever, you ever had someone look you in the eye and say, do you trust me? I mean, that's a big ask, really. Do you trust me? I mean, I like to believe the best in people. I like to see the best in, in people. But trust comes slow for me. I mean, there are people that I, I really like. There are people that I love to spend time with. They're fun. But I wouldn't trust them to watch my dog, let alone with something big. Trust comes slow. Like biologically, we're wired to want to trust. Like our nervous system. Like when we walk into a room, we're unconsciously evaluating the situation and asking the question, is this safe? Am I safe here? Can I trust this place? Can I trust this environment? Can I trust these people? And so this morning, I, th- I think we're, we're confronted with that question. The question from Jesus is, do you, do you trust me? Because over and over and over and over in the Bible, there's this, this nudge towards trust. Even when things aren't ideal, even when things don't go my way, when life takes a sharp turn that we did not expect, Jesus is standing there asking, yes, but still, do you trust me? There are, however, some needed connectors to establish trust. The first is understanding. I like to follow the work of a man named Dr. Henry Cloud. Henry Cloud is a a man of deep faith. He's also a a Christian psychologist uh, that works in the mental health arena. And, And he says there are actually five connectors that establish trust. The first is understanding, because we want to know that people get us. We want to know that the people do understand us. Like, I think Jesus gets me. In the Gospel of John, we read that that the word, that the logos, that, that Jesus became flesh, became human, and made his home amongst us. He came and experienced what we experience, all of our temptations, all of our weaknesses. He, he experienced life. He gets me. He understands what it means to be a human being. I trust him. But Dr. Clark goes on to say, there, there also needs to be intent. What is your intent towards me? I mean, I... I want to know that your intent towards me is good. I always find it frustrating when I, I know someone calls me only because they want something from me. It's very frustrating. God's intent towards you is good. The prophet Jeremiah writes, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. My plans, my intent towards you is to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Yes, this world we live in is very imperfect. Things don't always go our way, but God's intent towards you is always good. But I also want to know, the third connector is, 
does the person I trust have the ability to earn my trust? Like if I go to my, my doctor, it's not enough that he's a nice guy. I need to see the medical degree on the wall. I need to know that he knows what he's doing. I'm currently teaching my 15-year-old son how to drive. You ever taught a kid how to, how to drive? It's actually a very terrifying experience. Uh, and I, listen, I, I 100% trust his intent that he wants to be a good driver. I do not yet trust his ability. Oh, I believe he desires to be a good driver and he's moving towards that direction. But the experience we had a month ago in a roundabout makes me question (laughs) the ability. In order to trust, we also need to see character. Character comes out particularly when I'm under pressure. Jesus hangs on the cross. He's being crucified. He's in pain. He's bleeding. He's actively dying. Jesus is in the most stressful moment a human being could ever experience. And Jesus' character oozes out when he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I trust Jesus' character. Finally, there's, there's the track record. Can I trust this person's track record? I mean, we trust ourselves based on our intentions, but we trust others based on behavior. Because remember the last time? We trust is often established on the last time. When I look at the life of Christ, Jesus' track record is spotless. He is consistent, he is reliable, he is faithful, he is filled with grace and truth. I trust him. So when things feel unsettled, because they will, I want to strengthen you and encourage you in your faith. I'm going to go back to verses 3 through 5, back to our text. So that no one would be unsettled By these trials, life can be unsettling. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. You ever felt unsettled? Like you just couldn't seem to get your balance. Like, let me, you ever just imagine life? You just, you just can't seem to. You know, just can't seem to. It's a lot of energy just to keep things settled. You ever just felt that way? The life was so shifty. We all have those events, we all have those seasons. For the Thessalonians, what what caused them to feel unsettled was persecution. They lived in a time in which persecution for their faith was not only inevitable, but it was normal. It was an everyday occurrence. The the city that they lived in was was one of the centers of of the Roman gods, of of, of Greek worship. They, They had a view of Mount Olympus, the home of Zeus. Idols were everywhere. 
And because the Christians would not worship the idols, the Greek gods, they were put at odds with society and often got blamed for society's failures because they would not worship the gods. I mean, the Roman governor, Bithynia, had no hesitation in sending to immediate execution anyone that was even accused of being a Christian because the name Christian was an immediate death sentence in his reign. In the year 64 AD, the emperor Nero wanted to rebuild Rome in his image and in his likeness. He wanted to start over. And so many believe that he started a great fire that burned three quarters of Rome to the ground, but he did not want to be accused of starting a fire, so he blamed the Christians. It was those Christians that did it, and decades of persecution followed. The Roman governor, Tactius, described Christians as a class hated for their abominations and guilty of hatred of the human race. Theirs was not a religion, but a deadly superstition, and hence worthy of repression. The emperor, Marcus Aurelius, said that Christians were unpopular and were blamed for causing natural disasters by refusing to worship the deities that protected them. I mean, even today, each year 100,000 people are killed for their faith. But if we're honest, none of us probably have experienced that kind of persecution where we're afraid to assemble at risk of our life. Oh, we may be called names from time to time or made fun of, maybe even looked over for things, but no one's feeding Christians to lions these days. So there's not a lot of external persecution, maybe some, but not a lot. But I bet some of us have vast amounts of internal persecution. The Apostle Paul writes that he was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you. It's a reference to the devil, Satan, one that the scripture calls the accuser of the brethren. Some of us do it to ourselves. We are filled with shame, guilt, thinking we're not enough, we're not good enough, and we beat ourselves up over and over and over, and that accusatory voice in our head constantly reminds us that we're not good enough. And though we may not have external persecution, we do have internal persecution, and it unsettles us. Others of us are unsettled by suffering. Because when we suffer, we ask a lot of questions. Most of them begin with why, God, can I really trust you in this situation because you did not deliver the way I hoped for? C.S. Lewis, who's most famous for writing the book The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, wrote a lesser-known book called The Problem of Pain shortly after the death of his wife. And he writes, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When I struggle, I feel unsettled. I also feel unsettled because of dissatisfaction. It's a lack of contentment. 
dissatisfied with my life, my job, my marriage, my kids. I'm just dissatisfied with, with all of it. And because I'm dissatisfied, I'm constantly trying to manage my image, to curate an image of me that people will like. And I look at other curated images and I compare myself and I feel less than. On Mother's Day, maybe, maybe you're a mom and you just don't feel like you're measuring up to the super moms out there. When we lived in Colorado, we, we had some friends and uh, they had three little kids and, and the mother was, was super mom. The three kids, two twin girls and a boy, they always matched, always had matching outfits every time I saw them. It was horrible, horrifying. I just, we were lucky if we got shoes on our kids when we got out the door. Matching outfits, always perfectly put together. And I remember one, one year I, I got really sick, I got the flu, and so she stopped by with her kids in their matching outfits and dropped off a big pot of chicken noodle soup. And I warmed it up, and it was the best chicken noodle soup I have ever had. So when I brought the, the bowl back, I said, wow, this was the best I've ever had. What did you do? And she said, well, you know, I grew the vegetables in my garden and I, I made the noodles homemade. And I'm, you made the noodles homemade? She said, yeah, I grow the wheat in my backyard. You grow the I hate you. What, what do you mean you grow the... We're, we're lucky if we like get Campbell's Chunky instead of the stuff you have to add water to grow the wheat in your backyard. I, well, thing I grow in my backyard is weeds grow, grow the wheat in my backyard. And I just am dissatisfied. And then, of course, there's just regret, a lifetime of regret of decisions made and consequences experienced. And while God can be trusted in all things, sometimes we, we do have to experience the consequences of our own actions. And it leaves us unsettled and there's doubt and there's pain and there's temptation and all of these things. And so what does it look like to steady ourselves in the midst of instability? The last two verses of chapter 3, Paul writes a benediction and he gives us some steadying practices in that, that benediction. He writes, may... The Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So as this chapter wraps up, there are these these steadying practices that we incorporate our, into our life, particularly when, when things feel unsettling. The first is, is stability in the faith community. Many of the Apostle Paul's letters were written, written to communities of faith, not just individuals. There were some, but most of them were to communities of faith. There's stability in the faith community. There was a rhythm of life, a rhythm of expressing faith together. But I fear, what I fear deeply is that then our day we've unknowingly exchanged a rhythm of life for an event. A church is something that we do rather than a part of who we are. A church is a building we go to rather than a people that we gather with. 
Last night I made the mistake. I said, I, I feel very passionate about what I'm going to say. And so I said, I, I said, I'm not going to go on a rant. And then I went on a rant. So I'm not going to promise you that. Because see, when church is simply an event, religion becomes a commodity rather than a community. And when religion becomes a commodity, then church becomes a product that I consume, that I receive from, rather than a community of faith that does life together. When church becomes a product, I choose a church because I like the place, I like the programs, I like the people, I like the music, I like the pastor, I like how he preaches, I like the sermons, I like all of these things, and I will gladly, on occasion, attend that church until something happens that I don't like, something happens that I disagree with, when a decision is made that mm, I don't like that, or I get into a little kerfuffle with somebody, or I get my feelings hurt, or Pastor John gives three bad sermons in a row. (laughs) He's off this weekend. I think. Or when I don't like the trajectory of the music or when I'm just no longer satisfied. See, when, when all I choose to do is receive, I forget in order to receive, someone else has to give. The community of faith is about receiving and giving. Taking, working things out. There's, there is stability in community. And if you look at the evolution of church buildings, you can maybe notice where the issue started. Because in, in the book of First Thessalonians, the church that was written to, it was a church that met in a home. There were no church buildings. And they met around a table. And there was always a meal, not just communion, but a full meal. Which, that's my kind of church, and I think we need to bring that back. And they would gather together in homes, sometimes daily, together, as a life rhythm, a community of faith. But when the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity and legalized the Christian faith, many of the Roman temples that were octagonal in shape were turned into churches. And people left homes and started meeting in buildings. When cathedrals were built in the Middle Ages, they were built in the shape of a cross and there were certain parts of the church that the common people could not go to because there needed to be separation from the common people and the priest or the pastor because the pastor was holy and could not interact with the riffraff, thus perpetuating, thus perpetuating the problem. And now, today, we build our churches to look more like theaters, which is every church that I know, And the table has been replaced with rows. The community of faith that gathers to grow together comes to get something that I like. Oh, and I'm not just blaming you. Pastors are the same way. We do the same thing. None of us are really innocent because a pastor will stick around for a while. I mean, the average tenure of a senior pastor at a church is three to five years. And they stay to church until a bigger church comes along that pays a little bit more and maybe is in a more desirable city and you go to the next church until something happens there and then a pastor goes to the next church, thus perpetuating the problem. I was with a guy years ago who had 
pastored the same church for 30 years. And someone asked him, said, what, what, is, what is the benefit of being in, in the same church for 30 years? And he said, you know, one of the benefits of being in the cha- same church for 30 years is you stick around long enough to clean up your own messes. No church is perfect. This church is far from perfect. So the question that I, I would ask is, if we're going to find stability in community, then it can't just be, be an event. It has to be so much more than that, which is why the Bible often refers to the church as a family. And I don't just walk away from my family when things get tough. This August, I, this August I'll begin my 15th year here. And I, listen, there, there have been moments. Thank you. As you're clapping, there have been moments in which I'm like, okay, I, I could probably. But I don't because I love this church. This is, my, this is my community of faith. I'm committed to this, to this church. There's stability in community. But he goes on to write, if you want to be steady in, in, in unsettling times, increase and overflow with love, verse 12. Or said another way, find ways to love intentionally. Because when you choose to love intentionally, you find that the ground underneath your feet becomes a bit more steady. It has nothing to do with how you feel or an emotion. It's everything to do with an action. Little actions that create stability. So a couple weeks ago, my, my wife and I decided that it's time to do some spring cleaning because we have like 26 years of junk. I mean, our basement looks like a hoarder's house. I mean, it's, we, we got to do something about this. Our garage is a disaster. I mean, it, this, this can't be anymore. I get anxious and claustrophobic when I walk into my garage. This is no longer acceptable. So I rented a 20-yard dumpster. Now, if you know dumpsters, that's, that's a pretty decent-sized dumpster, 20 yards. I said, I'm going to fill this thing. If I can't sell it on Facebook Marketplace, I'm just going in the dumpster. So over the course of three days, I filled it three-quarters of the way full of stuff, just junk. Just throw it away, throw it away, just get rid of it all. So cleansing for the soul. But there was a quarter of it that wasn't full, and I'm, like, I like to get my money's worth, right? I want to know that... Like, if I pay for a full dumpster, I I need to fill this thing. So I went to all my neighbors and said, hey, I've got this dumpster. If you want to throw stuff in it, just chuck it in there, man. Just don't go above the line, but throw whatever you want in there, except paint. I was warned about paint. Anything else, throw in the dumpster. And one of my neighbors said, yeah, great. I got a bunch of stuff, and he threw a bunch of stuff. And he goes, hey, how much much can can I pay you? How much can I contribute to this? And I said, you know what? We're good, man. Just use it. It was just a kind of a, a small intentional act of love. And I know you're thinking, wow, you're such a good at two shoes. But no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cheapskate, man. I'm a tightwad. I, I don't, that does not come natural for me. That was me intentionally loving. Because if I, if I did what I felt, I would have said, give me a hundred bucks. That would have been what, what I felt. But that's not what I did. Because every time I love intentionally, I increase and overflow with love and it makes me feel a bit stable in an unsteady world. He goes on finally to say, and may God strengthen your heart. Which really is a, a fairly nebulous statement. I mean, strengthen your heart. I, I mean, I know what it takes to strengthen my physical heart. So I do cardio several days a week to strengthen my physical heart. But what about my spiritual heart, which is what 
This is being referenced to. How do I, how do I strengthen my physical heart? Well, then he goes on right by being blameless and holy. Blameless and holy. How does one become blameless? Well, the word blameless doesn't mean perfect. The word blameless does not mean without fault. The word blameless alludes a little more to, to freedom than it means lacking of fault. And, and one of the ways that I, I can become blameless is by the very old Christian practice of confession. James writes, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. And there's nothing magical about it. If I want to feel blameless, I find somebody I trust, someone I deeply trust, and I say, you know what? I messed up. I failed. I did this. Would you just, would you just hear me? Maybe pray for me. Maybe hold me accountable. I want to live blameless. I live blameless when I, when I have the freedom to confess my sins. I also live blameless when I can learn to practice a little bit of self-control. So it seems like we're losing the ability to control ourselves, control our emotions, control anything, really. I, on Tuesdays at our, at our church, we, our staff orders lunch together. Someone puts out a menu. There's a money envelope. Someone goes and picks it up. And this week on Tuesday, it was Culver's. And I looked at the menu, and I looked at the, the double burger, the butter burger with bacon and all those glorious things found in heaven, and, and the cashew salad. On one shoulder was the devil saying, get the burger, and on the other shoulder was my doctor saying, you need to lose 20 pounds. I'm like, am I going to offer even a little bit of self-control here. And I did, by the way, I got the salad very unsatisfying, but <laughs> at some point there's got to be a little bit of self-control. I want to be blameless. We've got to offer a little bit of self-control. Be blameless and holy. The word holy simply means to be set apart. It means I intentionally live my life in a way that's different, a way that honors God. I'm going to ask our, our worship team to come back. Jesus is worthy of your trust. And so let me strengthen you and encourage you in your faith, in your trust. Jesus gets you. He understands. His intent towards you is good. He has the ability to save. He proved it on the cross. His character is undeniable, and his track record is spotless. You can, you can trust him. So when you're feeling unstable, you can trust him. And you can trust the community of faith. With all of our imperfections and fault, there is something about stability and community because it's that stability and community that strengthens our heart. It's that stability and community that helps us live lives that are blameless. So, so today, oh God, this morning, Jesus, we, we trust you. I choose to trust you. And so I encourage all my friends here that, that they would be strengthened in their faith, that they would stand firm even when things do not make sense, even when things seem to be going in a direction I could have never imagined, or when things are, things are going great and I almost feel like I don't need you. Maybe even in those moments, and especially those moments, I trust you. I trust you. And I love you. So maybe we be encouraged today. Maybe we be strengthened and encouraged in our faith.